When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonder and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. It's the end of the world as we know it. Uh, it's a, a line from an REM song, if you're uh, young enough to, to know that. Um, but there's been no shortage of end-of-the-world movies in recent years. That seems to be a pretty strong theme. There's been plenty of these movies that talk about the world ending in different ways, from meteors crashing into the earth or from some disease or plague that wipes out the population. Climate change has also been a very big theme in more recent years for those end-of-the-world movies. Uh, even robots and dragons can be the means by which the world comes to an end. And it's no surprise, but nuclear war is the biggest of all of those themes about how the world is going to come to an end. But what surprises me with most of these movies is how many biblical themes and ideas they actually borrow. Uh, There's plenty of them that have almost biblical titles like Armageddon, uh, these movies that talk about the world ending in a particular way. Now, the Bible certainly does talk about end times, and it does talk about that day when God will judge this world. And this morning, we're looking at one of those passages that very often gets cited or looked at as being one of those passages about the end times. 
Uh, now, I have no doubt that this is the hardest part of Mark's gospel for us to be able to read. It's a strange passage and very different to the rest of Mark's gospel. Uh, but when you look at it in its context and when you look at the things that follow on after Mark chapter 13, I think perhaps it's not as difficult a passage as we sometimes make it out to be. Now, at the beginning of chapter 13, if you go right to the very start, we notice that Jesus is with his disciples and he's still at the temple. Uh, the whole of these three chapters, four chapters, 11, 12, 13, um, they're all about the temple. They all take place at the temple and Jesus keeps making repeated references to the temple. Now, we don't have any buildings in our society today that are really the centre of national life like the temple would have been in Israel. Uh, the temple was the symbol that Israel were God's people. And it was obviously the centre of religious life, but it was the centre of national life as well. It said something about who they were as a nation. We don't seem to have any buildings that do that for us in our society today. People went there to worship God. They went there to deal with their sin. And in Jesus' day, uh, this temple would have been a bit of a reminder of better days when things were going much better in Israel, when they had their own king on the throne. And the temple would have been that constant reminder of the hope of Israel that one day God would restore the kingdom, that he would send his king. The temple was the symbol of God's presence with his people and they longed for the day that his glory would return to this temple. Now, as Jesus and his disciples are walking away from the temple, uh, one of them makes a comment about how impressive and beautiful the building is. And Jesus responds by saying, and you read it there at the beginning of Mark 13, that not one stone of this building is going to be left on another, that the whole thing will ultimately be destroyed. Now, Jesus heads down the valley through the Garden of Gethsemane and up onto the hill on the other side at the Mount of Olives, uh, pretty close to where the temple was, only a couple of hundred metres away, and they could still see the temple. And he's there with just four of his disciples, and they want to know what he means by the temple being destroyed. That sounded like crazy talk to them. I mean, if the temple is the symbol of God's presence with his people, what would that mean? But Jesus knows that all of those symbols ultimately find their fulfilment in him. The temple was the symbol of God's presence with his people. But when Jesus comes, when Jesus, who is God in the flesh, when he's there, you don't need a symbol of God's presence with his people. The reality is there. Jesus is there. And the temple was how you were to approach God. But when Jesus comes, you approach God through him. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but by me. And when Jesus dies on the cross, do you remember what happened in the temple? The curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain that separated off the Holy of Holies, the place where God literally symbolically dwelt, that place where the ark was kept, the curtain is now torn. The way to God has been made open through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So the disciples asked Jesus two questions, and it's important to see what the questions are, because then we'll understand the answer that Jesus gives. The questions are there, chapter 13, verse number 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will happen, 
and what will be the sign they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus, when is this going to happen and how will we know that it's going to happen? Well, that's what Jesus goes on to answer. Now, the first question is the easy one. When is it going to happen? And the answer is no one knows. That's exactly what Jesus says. Jump down towards the end of the passage, chapter 13, verse 32. No one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. No one knows when this will happen. But one thing that stands out all the way through this passage is that Jesus tells his disciples they need to keep watch. They need to be alert. Uh, have a look at a couple of verses with me. Just skim through them. Chapter chapter uh, 13, verse number 5. Watch out that no one deceives you. Chapter 9, uh, verse 9. Be on your guard. Verse 23. So be on your guard. Verse 33. Be on your guard. Be alert. Verse 35. Therefore keep watch. Verse 37. What I say, I tell everyone, watch. There's an urgency to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus certainly doesn't tell him exactly when things are going to happen, but he's pretty sure that they need to be ready. So the second question, what will be the sign? Well, this is where the passage moves into its more colourful language, the more poetic language. It's a style of literature that we call apocalyptic. We saw it when we looked through the book of Revelation. I think one of the things that helps helps us understand apocalyptic literature is that it's a little bit like surrealist art. Now, I don't claim to know a whole lot about art, but when you look at some of the paintings by the surrealist painters like Dali or Picasso, you're not supposed to take the whole thing literally. You're not supposed to look at every detail and say, well, what does that mean or what does that mean? You're supposed to step back and get the big impression. So here's one of Dali's most famous paintings. This is called The Persistence of Time. You're not supposed to ask, why is one clock on five to seven and another clock on six o'clock? That's not the question that you're supposed to ask. You're supposed to step back and get the big picture, get the impression from the picture. Or here's Picasso's painting of Guernica. Picasso painted this following the German bombing of a small town in Spain called Guernica during World War II. Now, there's not a single bomb or a plane in that, fo- in that painting, but it conveys the horror of what actually happened in Guernica on that particular day. Well, apocalyptic literature is sort of supposed to do the same thing. It's supposed to get you to feel rather than look at specific details. What's the impression that you get from these verses? Uh, from where we started the Bible reading today, from about verse 14, Jesus is talking about a dreadful day that's going to come. In fact, he says that it's going to be the worst day ever. Never been such a bad day before, never be such a bad day after. And look at some of the expressions that he uses. Have a look in verse 14. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go into his house or take anything out of it. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. When this day comes, run. That's what Jesus is saying. It's going to be a terrible, terrible day. Verse 17, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that it doesn't take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. 
What's being described here is, is the most horrible time that the world has ever known or will ever know. And then down to verse 24, we actually see that this dreadful day takes on cosmic proportions. In those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now, a lot of people look at this passage and think it's talking about the end of the world. Judgment. But Jesus ties another event to this dreadful day. Now look at verse 26. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. He's quoting there from the book of Daniel. This image that's there in the book of Daniel of the Son of Man coming on the clouds. But Daniel's not talking about the Son of Man coming to earth on the clouds. He's talking about the Son of Man coming before God, coming before the Ancient of Days, where he is given all glory and power and authority. So the coming of the Son of Man is closely connected with this great and dreadful day that's going to happen here. In fact, that's what we see happening in the book of Acts, isn't it? That when the disciples see Jesus leaving this earth, when when he ascends into heaven, he goes up on the clouds. That's what the disciples see. If you ever watch any of those detective movies or or TV shows, they often give you little details, little clues throughout the show that at the time seem quite irrelevant. You're wondering why we've been told that or why have we seen this little piece of information And it's not until later on that you actually start to put all of the pieces together and go, ah, right, so that's why we were shown that. Well, I think that the same thing happens as you read through Mark's Gospel. We're given all of these things in these chapters in Mark's Gospel, but if you keep reading, if you turn over to the next chapter, chapter 14, then a whole bunch of the things that Jesus has talked about actually make sense. So have a look at verses 32 to 36. Jesus says that they are, they need to stay awake. They need to be ready. They need to watch. He tells the parable about the masters who's, who's going away and will be returning. Verse 36 it says, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. And in the very next chapter, what do we see? Jesus has gone to the garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. Jesus is praying, and what do the disciples do? They fall asleep. And what does Jesus say? Verse 37, he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch for one hour? Mark 13, we're told about the cosmic proportions of this dreadful day, that the sun will be darkened. And what do we see happening in chapter 15, verse 33? At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Uh, there was a little verse that we read right at the beginning of our Bible reading from chapter Mark chapter 13, verse 16. It says, when the abomination that causes desolation, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it doesn't belong, let the reader understand... Let none of those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of their house go in to enter their house to take anything out. And then it says, and let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. 
Jesus is talking about this dreadful day, but look at what we read in Mark chapter 14, verse 51. When Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Mark Mark 13 said that this terrible day would happen. It would be such a bad day. Don't even run back to get your cloak. And here we see someone running off without their cloak. Jesus said in Mark 13 that no one knows the hour. Verse, verse 32 of chapter 13, no one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun, but only the Father. Be on your guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. But look at what happens in verse 41 of chapter 14. Returning the third time, this is still praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. One chapter before this, Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. And now he says, the hour has come. There's one little last clue that Jesus gives us, I think, in this warning in chapter 13 about being ready. Have a look, chapter 13, verse 35. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. Four different times are mentioned. And they happen to be the four different times at which the next events will happen in the book of Mark. It'll be in the evening that Jesus is betrayed by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. It'll be, sorry, it'll be in the evening when he's betrayed by Judas at the Last Supper. It'll be at midnight in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is arrested. It'll be when the rooster crows that Peter denies Jesus. And it will be at dawn that Jesus is taken before the Sanhedrin. I don't think it's a coincidence that all of these clues are in there in chapter 13 and find their fulfilment in chapter 14. Mark expects that when you've read chapter 13 that you're going to go on and read the next chapter as well. What's going to be the worst day in human history? What's going to be the most dreadful thing that will ever take place on this planet? Surely it's got to be the death of the Son of God, hasn't it? I mean, what could be more horrific than Jesus taking the sin of the world on himself and paying for it in his death? Jesus said to the disciples that this generation isn't going to pass away until these things have happened. And they didn't. They saw him nailed to the cross. All the way through Mark's gospel, There's been this funny thing happening because the religious leaders keep looking for a way to arrest Jesus and they want to kill Jesus. And Jesus keeps saying to the disciples, the religious leaders are going to arrest me and they're going to kill me. They want him out of the way and Jesus knows what's going to happen. I think all the way through the Gospels, he's trying to prepare his disciples for this dreadful day that's going to be dreadful for them as well. Nowhere near as dreadful as it is for Jesus. But what's about to happen isn't some unexpected event. The arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is not a mistake and Jesus wants them to be completely aware of that. 
This is the day that Jesus knew would come. This is the day the judgment of God is going to be poured out on him. And it would be a horrible day. But it's the day that gives us life. It's the day that we celebrate next Friday and we call it Good Friday. I mean, you can never sugarcoat the death of Jesus on the cross. We should never think that it was an easy thing for Jesus to do. And the horrific images that we see in Mark chapter 13 just convey something of what it was like for him. This is a dreadful day for Jesus. It's the day that he would take the punishment for our sin. It's the day that he would be cut off from his father. But it's also the day that should lead us to even greater thanks to Jesus for what it is that he's done for us. It should lead us to be more thankful for the fact that Jesus would be willing to suffer for us in that way. It should lead us to be more thankful that he would endure that so that we could be forgiven. It should lead us to be more thankful that he's made it possible for us to be a part of his kingdom. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, as we move towards this time of Easter, as we remember again what we call Good Friday, help us to remember how difficult it was for Jesus to face that day, for him to endure that hardship, to him, for him to endure that pain and that suffering, not for his benefit, but for our benefit. We know that indeed it is a good day, not an easy day, but a good day for us because it is the day on which our sins were dealt with. It was the day on which the pathway was made open for us to enter into a relationship with you through the forgiveness that comes in Jesus. Father, we are thankful for what it is that you've done for us. We are thankful for that sacrifice that was made. And we pray that you would help us to live lives that reflect our thankfulness to you for all that you have done. And we pray those things in the precious name of your Son and our Saviour, Jesus. Amen.